0: If you would, uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Acts. We'll begin our study in chapter 13 this morning. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 12, uh, specifically. Probably focusing most of uh, our time, actually, in the first uh, three verses. Uh, But we'll see how that goes. We will first uh, seek God, the Holy Spirit in prayer, and then we will read the text under consideration, and then we will examine the passage with the aim at understanding the aim of the author, making applications uh, for the church corporately and as individual members of the body of Christ. So let us pray together. Holy Spirit of God, may the Father grant to us your help this morning. We ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the passage to our minds for understanding, grace to inflame our hearts and faith. We ask that you give us enabling grace to engage our will to obedience. Help us to see the divine nature of the mission that you have given to us to make disciples. We ask you to send us to those you are calling to yourself. Give us confidence in the superior nature of your message. Pray this morning for the church that gathers at Dilly uh, Bible Church. Pray that you would work in the teaching, uh, the truth of the gospel there at Dilly and that it, that it would be pleasing to you and winsome to their neighbors. We ask these things for this church as well in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as you are able, would you please stand for the reading of The infallible, inerrant word of God from Acts chapter 13, beginning verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a long, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had gone and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's Word. You all may be seated. I've said this, I've quoted this before, I'm going to quote it again this morning. Charles Spurgeon has said that it is the whole job of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. I want to say that again. It is the whole job of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. I want us to compare that statement with this statement that I have said to you before that comes from uh Mark Dever all of our evangelism is done in a graveyard we preach the word of god we preach the word of god we preach the gospel to dead dry bones salvation is all of god from beginning to the end you can turn there with me if you like to ezekiel ezekiel 37 i want to read those verses because they, they give us this, this understanding that the gospel is all in the power of God. It is us who proclaim it, but it is all in the power of God. And Ezekiel 37 reads this, "...the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and He led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And He said to me, Son of man... Can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophecy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sin news upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. And we know this too from the Scriptures, that the Spirit moves where it wishes. John 3.8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The mission of God, the great commission of God's people, I want us to get this, is a divine work. It is a divine work. It's God's work. It is the Spirit's work. The direction of the mission is divinely chosen. The missionaries are divinely selected and divinely sent. And we can understand this too, that the mission's success is guaranteed because it is divinely superior in any power that the world may have to offer. The church of Jesus Christ has a responsibility to that work. The church, the individual Christian, the missionary, is but the method, the means, the instrument of God's work. So what is the matter of priority for the church in the divine mission? As we looked at last week, the priority is prayer. It is waiting upon the timing of the Holy Spirit. The divine priority is prayer. I was talking with Jessica this morning that, that sometimes when we think about the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of salvation, they seem like those two things need to be reconciled. We in our, in our humanity want to reconcile those two things as if they are strangers, as if they are two things that don't coexist at the same time. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Well, in a book called uh, Sovereignty and the Evangelism of God, he states it like this. The sovereignty of God and human responsibility are not strangers who need to be reconciled. They are brothers who are, all, who are already in relationship one with another. There's no need to reconcile those two things because the instrument of God's work is in the church. The instruments of God's work is in Christians, individual Christians in the church. So I want us to look uh, closely at, at those who are divinely selected here and how this selection process comes. I want us to pay special attention to verse one because this is the subject of the passage. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a, long, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying... They laid hands on them and sent them off. So as we have studied so far, and we saw in in Acts chapter 11, that the church at Antioch had already been actively engaged in bringing the gospel to their nearby uh, Gentile friends. And God had raised up in the church uh, of Antioch prophets and teachers for a wider mission, a mission that will take them well beyond the borders of Assyria. But at first glance, we might think that the subject of this text is the prophets and the teachers. When you first look at it, you think that it is. But in the Greek language, they have a varied way of looking at the the subject. And the subject, what the passage is about, the subject is the church. That's the subject. Now there were at the church, it just so happened that at that church there were these men, prophets and teachers that God had raised up. What I want us to see is that the church is is as engaged or ought to be as engaged in this mission as the ones that are raised up. It it is a work of, of the corporate church. So I want us to See that as we uh, continue to unfold this. So Luke, you see, he mentions those distinct offices of prophet and teachers, and the emphasis in this section is that the church as a whole is involved. They are united in the same spirit. A fellow pastor and friend of mine, Michael Lawrence, once told me this, that he is so convinced of congregational authority and responsibility that that is that every member in the church and that the church uh, itself is united on mission who is saturated in the scriptures, he, he sees it so saturated in all of the scriptures that the church is engaged uh, together in unity that he could preach congregationalism from any passage of scripture. I don't know if I could go that far. But I do see congregationalism in this passage, that the church working together United together in one spirit is at work in the selection process of those whom the Holy Spirit is going to send. So we'll later expand expound upon what Luke presents here uh, in Acts on the united mission of the church according to the Spirit. In First Corinthians uh, chapter 12 through 14, he expounds on this idea of the whole body engaged in the whole mission of the church. In uh, one Corinthians twelve verses four and seven through seven, it says, "Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit; and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord; and there are ver- very uh, varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See, the church is working together as a unit." For the common good in chapter 12 verses 13 and 14 it says for just as the body is one has many members and all members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ for in one spirit they were all baptized into one body Jews are Greeks slaves are free and all were made to drink of one spirit verse 18 of chapter 12 in first Corinthians says but as it is God has arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose And later down at the end of chapter 12 and 27, verse 30, it says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do, Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The idea here is that not all do the same work, but all are involved in the work. All are united in the work. The church is united in the divine mission. Though some parts of the church are set apart for distinct purposes in the divine mission, they are divinely selected. They are God's chosen vessels for the work of mission. But the church member indwelt with the same Holy Spirit the vessel that it receives it, that same spirit is engaged and involved in the process of the spirit's selection. The whole church is engaged in the spirit selection of Barnabas, of Simeon, who is called Niger, of Lucius, of Manon, of Saul. The they in verse two and verse three is the subject named in verse one. In verse one, the subject. Now there were in the church. In verse 2, while they, the church, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they, the church, laid hands on them and sent them off. They, the church, is engaged in prayer and fasting as they wait upon the Spirit's leading. The missionaries are divinely selected, chosen according to the sovereign will of God that confirms the divinely selected men for the mission as they fast and pray. They wait upon the Lord's confirmation by the Spirit. Sometimes we think about the Holy Spirit in, in some very uh, strange ways, don't we? I, I think we do. I think we, I think we sometimes think about how the Holy Spirit works as, as the Spirit only works in spontaneity. We think that the Holy Spirit only works uh, in an individual and not in a corporate sense. Well, the Spirit can convince one of us of, the Spirit can convince all of us of. The divine mission under the guidance of the Holy Spirit is undertaken normatively in the context of the local church. Before the church sets out upon this mission, before the church affirms those are selected for the particular work, the church prays and fasts and waits upon confirmation from the Spirit. They wait upon confirmation of the Spirit. When Christians describe the Holy Spirit, they often do, do so in individualistic terms, terms with which we cannot argue. I've heard... Folks say stuff like this. The Spirit has convinced me that I ought to go do dot, 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 dot. The Spirit may have convinced you of that, but it hasn't convinced us of that necessarily. This sort of statement, though, is said in a way in which you cannot argue against it. There is no way to argue against it. Someone comes and they have this individual notion that the Spirit has moved them to go do something, and they come and tell you, the Spirit has told me to go here and do this and such and such a thing. How does one argue with that? Do you deny that the Spirit spoke to that person? You can't do that, right? But the Spirit can convince all of us, and and we are to do such things together. I remember a a well-known teacher say of a student who said this. He comes to the teacher who is a, who's a professor of, of preaching, he comes to him and he says, Sir, I am called to preach the gospel. I am called to be a preacher. I am convinced of the Holy Spirit. And the teacher said to him, I, sir, have heard you preach. I am filled with the same spirit as you are. You may be convinced that you are called to preach, but I am also convinced that there is no one who is called to listen to you. <laughs> I have had church members say, I'm sure that I'm called to do ministry in this way and in this place. And even after you know, advising them, hey, wait, let's engage the whole body to come in behind you, and to help you. I've heard them say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. The Spirit has convinced me. Rather than waiting for the church to be convinced of the same thing, in the same way. I think you get ahead uh, of the Spirit. I think, of course, that that God often uses our folly when we do that. He can still use us in mighty ways. But I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I'm going to do ministry outside of the context of church. I'm just going to do it myself rather than waiting on the Spirit. Do you believe that what the Spirit convinces one of us of, He can convince all of us of? He can convince us all. The elders and I talk about this often when we pray and we're meeting and we're making, trying to make uh, some sort of decision. And I may have a very firm thought and idea This is what we ought to do. And they are not convinced. The answer then is wait. Wait. And we pray. And I may be convinced to line up with them, or they may be convinced to line up with me, but we wait. We wait for the Spirit to move in us in a united way. Well, the Spirit conceives and convinces one of the members of, I think He convinces us all of the same thing. And in the context of the church here at Antioch, the church is sure that God has called these five men to be uh, teachers. He's called them to be prophets. He has raised them up for such, and He's raised up these two, particularly Barnabas and Saul. But they wait. They wait and pray. They wait on the Lord for their answer to be in agreement. That the Spirit is sending these on mission. And the mission then includes them all, doesn't it? If we wait on the Lord to be convinced together, then the whole church goes. It might be just Barnabas and Saul out there, right? Physically. But the church goes with them. Because they waited and they were convinced upon the Holy Spirit that they were united together in this mission. They they all went. They all went. Every one of them is going. Every one of them is on that same mission. They're united in spirit. They're all gone. They're all with Him. They're all with them as they go. The mission about to be embarked on is one in which the whole church engages in and not just those who are sent. That's what we see in this passage. Verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, and seeking to turn the proconsul away, from the faith. So Luke here continues to emphasize the divine direction in the expansion of the church. Not only those who were uh, called, were divinely called, divinely selected, they are divinely also sent, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They are sent by the authority of God. They are sent in his authority, united together with the church. But what I want us to notice this is that when they send them out, when the Spirit sends them out, notice that the Holy Spirit sends them to familiar ground. Sends them to familiar ground. Places where the Gospel and its people might already have an audience. Barnabas is called and sent to Cyprus, the place of his home. He sent to the place where he grew up. He sent to his, the place where he would call home. Would he not have a natural audience? People who knew him? he has a natural audience he's sent home he sent to a place where god had already opened the doors who had already made it humanly possible that he would have an audience you see uh they 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 at first they proclaimed the gospel in the synagogues right where although they the people in the synagogues may have already rejected christ they do believe in the old testament scriptures as the authoritative word of god though they're starting in a position where these people understand that the Scriptures are the authoritative Word of God. They have an open door. They have an avenue. They have an audience. The Holy Spirit sends them not at first into a foreign, a completely foreign place. It sends them to a place of familiarity, a place where there's opportunity for one to uh, hear the Word of God. I think that people often think that the Holy Spirit moves only in spontaneity and only in dramatic ways. I remember one time, uh, as I put together kind of the, the, the text for, for preaching, I do it about four months in advance. So I have a, I have a four month kind of, this is what we're going next and so on. And there's very, uh, things that, that, that the Spirit moves me away from and goes, okay, well, actually you're going to take this passage shorter than you planned or you're going to take it longer, whatever it might be, right? Um, Those things happen, but I do plan it out. And somebody says, well, how can you plan out four months in advance? Are you not thwarting the Holy Spirit of God? And I'm like, well, the Holy Spirit uh, works in my planning just as well as he does in spontaneous change. He works just as well in my planning. I don't limit him to, to, he's at work in my planning. And then he works spontaneously at times when I get to the planned message and he says, that's not it. So, he works in both ways, right? In spontaneity, but he works in the normal, I think that, that the Holy Spirit works uh, extraordinarily in the most ordinary of our circumstances. He works extraordinarily in ordinary circumstances, in the everyday Working that we, that we do in our lives. He sends us to places where we're already familiar. He, he, he gives the gospel favor in extraordinary measure in these places. And he does so through very ordinary people, very ordinary men and women. As he sends us out, he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. It's not always dramatic you know he takes a, a knucklehead like me and says here preach my word he does in a in a he takes a very ordinary guy and sometimes the holy spirit works in extraordinary ways through this ordinary sort of person and i think that is true of all of us right when he sends us out he, he uses ordinary people and he does extraordinary work but it's normal it's not weird it's not strange it's not even always very dramatic, although it can be. I'm not limiting the Holy Spirit and saying He can't do dramatic things because He does whatever He wants, as we just saw. As the wind blows, so He goes. And we don't know where it comes from, right? The Spirit does what He as He wishes. But I think that, that what our normal experience is, we've got to stop and listen and pray as this church did. They're waiting for God to work in the ordinary. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to move in them in, in the ordinary things. And he does so. So they're sent to Sergius Paulus. He's the highest ranking, uh, it's kind of the highest ranking office in the in the Roman centurial, uh, senatorial provinces. He summoned Barnabas and Saul, we see in this passage. He desires to hear the word of God concerning. Christ. It's divinely sent. This is a divine appointment. The Holy Spirit has gone ahead. He was was there with them as they prayed to him, as they fasted and they waited upon the convincing to go. But the Holy Spirit had gone ahead in Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus is prepared. God prepared him. God prepared Sergius Paulus to hear and receive the Word of God. He desired the Word of God. That is a work of the Holy Spirit, friends. It always is. It always is. The work of the Holy Spirit for one to even want to listen to us, to want to listen to what we have to say, to receive the truth. The Spirit has gone before us. I think that's why it's important for us to sometimes slow down and sometimes wait because we get out ahead. The Spirit wants to do the work that we desire. We desire. We do desire good things when we desire that our friends and our family and our neighbors and strangers come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We we want that. We desire it. It's a good thing. And I believe it's consistent with what the Spirit wants to do. But I think sometimes we need to wait. We need to wait and pray and let the Spirit go ahead of us and let us not get ahead of what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He summoned Barnabas and Saul. He wants to hear the word of God concerning Christ. But Sergius here is accompanied by a false prophet. He's accompanied by Bar-Jesus. He's known as Elimus, which means magician. It is Elimus' aim to thwart the gospel of Christ, to dissuade Sergius from believing what the missionaries uh, have to say. But I think we must know this, brothers and sisters, wherever the Spirit leads us, when He gives us opportunity in familiar places, we must know that we are also going to face opposition. And if favor is granted and people are saved through the gospel proclaimed, it's only because it is a work of God. It is a work of the Spirit who has gone before us. It is a work of the Spirit uh, through us and in us. But here, they, this, this attempt to thwart this, He, he wanted to turn away Sergius Paulus from the faith. I don't want him to believe. So he's trying to undermine what what Paul and and Barnabas are are proclaiming to him. And then we look at Paul's response. It's rather firm, isn't it? But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "You son of the devil, You cannot thwart the gospel because it is divinely superior. The mission is superior to the, to the message of the world. It is far superior to the message of the world. And I wondered this this week as I prayed about, and prayed through this passage. Sometimes the message of the world gets really deep into my thoughts. It's really deep in my head. It even kind of taints my heart at times. The world says this, but I know the gospel to say this. And they're so opposite each other, but yet, well, according to the world, I ought to be acting like this. According to the world, I ought to be getting mine while the getting is good. And the gospel says, no, the message is superior. You know what we do when we, when we dumb down and think that the message is not superior and we don't have confidence in the superior power of the gospel over the power of the world's message? What do we do? We change the message. Just change the message. Make it easier. Make the message a little bit more palatable. You know, even saying this, the saying of Jesus as he, he walks in in Mark uh, chapter one. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We want to soften that down. The kingdom of God is at hand. And He really loves you. And if you, if you just are a nice enough person, and you're good enough, and you do right things for people, you, 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 you'll be okay. You'll make it. By the skin of your teeth, you'll make it, but you'll make it. Right? That's the message the world wants us to tell that one because it's a little nicer. But what Jesus says when he says, repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand, he says something very, very, very stark. In this moment, you are at crisis. You're in a moment of crisis. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you reject it, you have only one other thing coming. And that is judgment. God is the king. I'm announcing the kingdom. You only have that option. Repent and believe. Turn from that and turn to Him. Entrust yourself to Jesus or judgment. It's not a very palatable message, is it? Well, I want to leave us with this thought. Wherever we go, we are going to have those who reject our message. Those who uh, can't stand to hear what it is that we say. And maybe you have some family members who reject your message. I will tell you this. I want you to have confidence that this, the mission is divinely superior to any other message out there. I want you to have confidence that the message is divinely superior and that it, because of its power, it does accomplish exactly what God sent it to do, always, finally and ultimately. In Philippians chapter 2, it tells us this confidence that we can have. God has highly exalted Him, that is Jesus, and He has bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every human being, everyone created in the image of God, no matter how far they've tainted it, every, I mean, and I'm telling you, every human being, that has ever been created will one day with their mouth confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They may do so to their peril. They may do so in judgment, but they will. I have confidence in the divine mission. I have confidence in what the Scripture teaches us about this very thing, that one day, every one will confess Jesus Christ's name in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, our urgent mission right now is this. Confess Him now. Confess Him as Lord right now. Today is the day to confess Him as Lord. You must do it today. You must do it today. Because if He comes tomorrow, and He could, should the Lord not tarry, and He come tomorrow, and you've rejected Him, you will still get on your knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But do so today, and you will be saved. Do so tomorrow, and you may face judgment.